powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks of BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a massive thank you to my last guest, June Edward. That was a great episode, and I learned a lot from her. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 232, and we have a powerful and very moving episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Anne-Marie Principe. Now, Anne-Marie is a survivor of the September 11th, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center and has agreed to come on the show to tell her story as part of my ongoing Derek Duvall Show 9-11 Outreach Project. Anne-Marie will be discussing where she was when Flight 11 hit the North Tower, the horrors she was exposed to being caught in the toxic dust cloud from the collapse of the South Tower and the years-long health struggles that came from that exposure. Anne-Marie is also a fierce advocate for 9-11 survivors, having been part of numerous 9-11 legislation, the most notable being working with John Stewart and his team to get the Never Forget the Heroes Bill passed, which establishes the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. Anne-Marie will touch your life like she did mine after you hear her powerful story, so let's get to it. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from her home in New Jersey, Anne-Marie Principe. All right, Anne-Marie, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Uh, we have a big northeast storm coming up, um, so it's dark and cloudy and rainy like most people are feeling at the beginning of the year. So with the pandemic now coming to a close, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Very challenging. Very, uh, you know, There were a lot of unknowns for us. The 9-11 community are all immunocompromised. So we were very frightened. We, we could see what this disease did to people who had normal immune systems and who were healthy adults. Strangely, not too many of us caught COVID, but it, but it really made me extremely cautious. I did go out from time to time simply to avoid being stir crazy because when, when you live in a city-like atmosphere, it's not like you have a terrace or a backyard to go to. So for most of us, we were really stuck indoors, so no socializing, no sunlight, and that definitely impacts, you know, people with PTSD to begin with, and to be locked in a room and not see other people um, was really unhealthy. So we wound up doing a lot of time on Zoom to connect to one another, um, and that helped. 
the nine eleven community, are you guys still, I mean, pretty close all together? You guys keep in touch pretty close? We do. Um, I have several threads of messages where I talk to, there's a group of women, then there's the group that I walk the halls with, and then there's another group of women who are really politically active. So each of those threads tends to be very interesting and supportive and private places where we can talk about things that we don't want to share with other people. Um, some for reasons of you don't want to put those mental image pictures in somebody else's head. And the others that it's it's far less painful to speak about it to someone who, who knows your experience. Hmm. Makes sense. So, Anne-Marie, every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, first Jersey City, um, which is, you know, bustling metropolis. And then we moved to Bergen County. I grew up in a big family, five brothers and sisters, extended family. Um, we had a big house where um, one set of grandparents would come to live with us at a time. Um, two Great Danes, a horse in the backyard, a lot of property, lots of neighborhood kids. I grew up in the 60s where there were lots of Catholic families who had six to 14 kids. So it, it was a very fun, loving experience. I had two really great parents. Nice, nice. So what were your earliest career aspirations? Uh, I actually wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to work for NASA from the time I was little. Um, don't ask me where it came from. No one in my family was a pilot. I just saw planes and thought they were fascinating. I watched, you know, the, the Apollo launches as a small child. It fascinated me. And so that was my aspiration. And of course, at that time, women didn't really do those things. So when I would tell people I wanted to fly airplanes, they'd say, that's so nice. You want to be a flight attendant. <laughs> or stewardess, they called them at the time. I was like, no, nah, I want to fly planes. And I often heard, girls can't do that. Um, but my dad wasn't one of those people. My dad was one of those people that whatever you thought you could do, you should do. You know, it's amazing. When I get to work with NASA on this show, it's always a real treat for me. Uh, I got to have <laughs> one of the Apollo astronauts on my show. One of the, It was from Apollo 13. And actually talking to someone who's been to the moon, it's it's one of the greatest privileges of your life because only you know a handful of people who are still living right you know, who have actually been to the moon it's 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 it really makes you feel just how small and insignificant you are on this planet compared to just a handful of people so right i mean that that's incredible yeah yeah so the main reason i brought you on the show is you are not only a survivor of the September 11th attacks, but you are an advocate for survivors and first responders over the years. So that is a pretty fair assumption, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So let's start with the beginning. You were a owner of a modeling intelligent agency in Manhattan, correct? I was. I had a very different life 22 years ago. Yeah. And where were you on the morning of September 11th, 2001? Um, well, my company was located on Greenwich Street, um, just a couple blocks up from the towers. I was walking to work. I had taken the ferry in because it was just picture perfect day as we don't often get in New York City. I like to get to work early, uh, grab myself a cup of tea and sit in the quiet before craziness ensued. Um, we always had phones ringing, people in and out of our offices. So I needed like time to meditate and take on the day. 
And, uh, and of course, that day turned out very different. And what do you remember when you heard Flight 11 hit the North Tower? Oh, you know, it's very strange because being in the street and, and walking the opposite way, I heard the plane hit. I didn't see it. And I, I will opine that, you know, who thinks an airplane just flew into a building? Um, you know, I think many of us thought it was a small airplane um, or it had been some kind of small explosion because um, that was all we could see at the moment. And where I was in the street, there were filmmakers who were shooting B-roll, which is, of course, just background scenery for film. And so they started filming, and I was talking to them in the street, and I, I always talk to everybody. I'm very social. And then we saw the second plane. Um, and I, I think we were all just kind of looking at them and thinking, what's he doing? He's flying. So not, not even thinking one had already hit the towers um, because that's how much in denial were. And when he flew into that building, I think we just froze in shock. It, we didn't move. I mean, they kept filming. Um, probably some of the film that you see is from those filmmakers. And, and what ensued is you know, one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Hmm. What was the mood in the street after the first plane hit? And how long did it take you to make it to the World Trade Center? Well, for me, I was three, three, four blocks north of the World Trade Center. So Greenwich, Greenwich Street, where my office was, was straight up from the towers. So initially we were just standing and talking and, you know, what is this? And then after the second plane hit, we were horrified. Um, I think a lot of us were looking to see what do we do where do we go? Because then it becomes apparent this is intentional. Right. So is it safe to go into other buildings? Is it safe to walk anywhere else? I don't think we knew what to do. I mean, there, there's just no guideline for what to do when a plane hits a tower in lower Manhattan. Yeah, nobody knew what to do. You hear it and you see it in the video footage on YouTube and you you saw it on the news, but what is actually does the sound of a, of a, of a Boeing 767 hit the building sound like? You know, it's very funny. I can't, I can't recall the sound of it, the sight of it hmm. was, was the most horrific thing. Um, and it was the sounds after, um, because then it, that point that basically set off all of the uh, alarms almost like an air raid sirens right and then you know it started to get really smoky um and so we could hear jets flying overhead so then all of us were starting to kind of freak and and figure out is that the u.s is that who's ever attacking us we just didn't know, and cell phones were rudimentary at best in those days. Right. Um, so our signals started to fail because, unfortunately, most of the units were on top of the World Trade Center, radio stations, cell phone units. So all of a sudden, you know, things were being cut off, and my mom actually called me. She knew where my office was located. She said, please don't tell me you're at work today. I said, well, I'm, I'm actually in the street, Mom. And she said, oh, my God, please get out of there. The phone went dead. Hmm. Uh, and that was the last I spoke to her until probably 7 o'clock at night. Hmm. 
One of the most horrific images of the day, the sight of people jumping and falling out of the tower. Did you see any of that? Yes, yes. Um, and that's something you never forget. And out of respect to those families, I, I don't often speak about that because it is just, I don't know how those families cope. I don't think people realize that some of the jumpers' families did I, and could identify them. Um, so for me, that remains a very personal choice if those families ever choose to talk about that. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you remember when you saw the South Tower fall? Um, well, it was more that you could feel a rumble under your feet like a freight train. And I have experienced um, earthquake before I lived in Las Vegas for a little while. So I knew what an earthquake felt like. And you could just feel the ground shaking and a sound like a freight train coming through. <laughs> and, and being, I mean, fortunately we were in lower Manhattan. So there weren't many tall buildings at the time, but those towers were immense and all I could remember was that in 93, when the towers were bombed, the newscasters were all saying, had the towers ever come down, debris would fall as far as 42nd Street. And here I was, three, four blocks north of those immense towers. And it was just terrifying. Um, you know, and then it was just, if you've ever had a really bad dream where you're running through fog and you can't see anything and you feel like you can't run, you're being held back. That's exactly what that was. We didn't know where to go. We didn't know where to run. I got myself to the water because Tribeca, where my office was, um, was just a block or two from the Hudson River. And so the, the first thought was to get somewhere where a building couldn't fall on me, that I might be safe. Once again, we didn't know what else was out there because you couldn't see anything. So we didn't know had other buildings been hit. I didn't know if New Jersey was still there. We didn't know if this was nuclear, was this one off? We just, and we were cut off from communications. So we were basically just guessing what was going on. Right. How long did it take you to get home to your family? And I read you started getting sick from the dust exposure almost immediately. I did. I mean, at first I thought it was because I was, I was nervous. And then it occurred to me that, no, I had just inhaled um, incredible amounts of dust. And certainly by the time I got on the ferry, you know, I was coughing up gray dust. I couldn't breathe. And, and once again, I thought that, you know, this is stress. Like maybe I'm going to have a heart attack because I'm just so frightened. And I, I did shake. It's funny because I think I was just like, no, I was in shock as I walked to the ferry. It was about four miles to the ferry north of where I was. I had glass in my feet. I didn't even feel it. I didn't even know I had glass in my feet until I got on the ferry. And once I got across, I was with, of course, other survivors. We were um, held at the ferry because they didn't want to let anyone on the road. Because once again, they didn't have communication. They didn't know what was going on. They did know there were other planes in the air. Um, so they didn't want people on the road, the whole, you know, emergency services asked that people get off the road, stay off the road, stay in their homes. And so we were held at the ferry. My family had no idea 
um, if I survived where I was. And I finally managed to um, get with a group of people who were going out to where my then husband and my daughter were at the time. And it wasn't until I got out of the car and I saw my child that I shook. I mean, just shook. And I continued to shake for two to three days. I went to an emergency room to be treated for shock and smoke inhalation. And um, and I know they injected me with some kind of Valium or something. And it didn't matter. I just shook. I, I couldn't stop shaking for two or three days. And, and I did go back in to New York City the next day. It was my office. It was my company, my livelihood. And... I wasn't sure what was left. I, I didn't know how far the buildings had fallen. I didn't know it was destroyed. And it looked like a war zone. You know, just half a foot of ash and dust and dead birds in the street. Very apocalyptic. Hmm. My, my next question for you, Neil, is how hard was it for you to return to work? And what obstacles did you have to overcome as a business owner? Oh, I mean, initially it was just so sad because I would have to walk from the ferry, the, the one that was north, four miles, because they weren't allowing traffic downtown. The subways couldn't run because the one subway was under the towers, um, the one I would have taken. And so I would have to walk the miles. And as I did, you could see the buildings burning. You could see the smoke, you know, the terrible smell of... Yeah, ash and God forgive me, people. And so just psychologically, it was devastating. And then what we found is that we had leases. So even though we couldn't really get into our buildings and operate our companies, we had a contract. And there's nothing in your contract that excludes you from paying your rent because you're blocked by government fiat, because there's military vehicles in your neighborhood. So it was a whole new experience. I say to this day that the government just didn't know what to do. There was no precedence for what happened to us. So there were incredible missteps and problems and hurdles to overcome that were just immense. You, you had contracts for Con Ed, you had contracts for Verizon. You still had to pay your lease. My lease at the time was $4,000 a month. And my business was gone in an instant. I didn't have phone lines. I didn't have access to mail. How do you operate a business like that? And and that became overwhelming at a point where I just literally sat in my office one day and wept. I sent, I sent a few people home who were still coming into work. And I just sat and wept by myself because I didn't know what else to do. For my listeners who are not familiar with the term, what is the World Trade Center cough? It is, if you've ever heard someone who has um, smoker's cough, it's similar to that where you can't catch your breath um, to the point where you're hacking and coughing. And we were coughing up um, rather indelicate plugs of mucus and, and literally ash. You know, we'd cough up ash. Um, it, my ribs would hurt because I would cough so hard. Um, and sometimes you'd cough up blood and weren't sure if you were getting sick or you were just 
bruising your inside so badly um, that you were bleeding. Okay. How did you get involved in New York from the ground up? And can you tell my listeners about some of the groundbreaking success your organization has had? Yes. Um, so after my epic breakdown in my office, I thought, you know, somebody's going to do something and I don't quite know what to do. And there was a forum downtown that all of the different groups were holding, Verizon, Con Ed, uh, city agencies. And so I went with a bunch of other small businesses. We were a neighborhood. Um, there were some reporters there, a couple attorneys. And one by one, each of those 12 panelists told us they had no answers. They had no money. They couldn't tell us when our phones would be up and running, when we'd have electric when it would be safe for us to stay in our buildings. Part of it was they didn't know that the buildings were safe because when those buildings came down, they didn't know if they damaged the structure of the streets in Tribeca. And so I, I got up and I spoke my heart. And one of the attorneys at a New York Times reporter approached me and said, you're very well-spoken. And that was very eloquent. And have you thought of doing something. And I said, I would love to do something. I'm just not sure what to do. And they said, you know, we want to get a bunch of small businesses together and form a small business lobby. I had no idea what that was, but anything sounded good to me compared to doing nothing. Um, and I, I have to say, I found the place where I was always supposed to be. I had a voice. I had not been using the gifts I had been given. I'm a very good strategist, something I learned about myself. And they had a passion for helping people. And I really wanted to see my community rebuild. And we had some incredible people that we worked with that I still count as very close, dear friends today. And we put our talents together. And um, we were very naive at first, thought that our representatives in our city would help us because that was the right thing to do. And that was their job. And we found out very quickly that's not how it works. It, politics is always about votes and money. And so if you have a lot of money and you can make donations, you get help. Um, people say there's no such thing as pay for play. That's absolutely how the world of politics works or votes. And we weren't yet enough of a voting coalition to make a difference. So then we decided to partner with other organizations. So we started out as a group of 20 and it became 50 and 100. And then all of a sudden we were a thousand small businesses and their employees and their families. And then we became a force. We got invited to speak at different places, um, to be a part of the 9-11 commission hearings, which were very interesting. We didn't speak, but we, we were there. The Ground Zero Task Force was a couple of the local senators and city council people, um, Homeland Security, uh, different agencies who were giving aid, and we were invited to be part of that. And it was clear that people were trying very hard to help, but once again, they just didn't know what to do. And then we took our fight to Capitol Hill, and then it became really interesting. Which leads me to my next question, and that is, for my listeners who have not heard of this legislation, can you please tell them about the James Adroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act and how it came to pass? Yes. Look, it's 
it's in its infancy, it was then Senator Hillary Clinton um, and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, um, who fully believed we were we were going to get sick and we were sick, and started talking about how they needed to study and they needed to help the people downtown. And of course, Mrs. Clinton was very interested in creating a healthcare system for our nation. So this was second nature for her. Um, and so she looked at creating legislation um, in particular to help us to conduct research and get us treatment as did Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. And uh, there were countless studies and all kinds of opposition. It, it became a battle of who pays for this. New York City didn't want to be stuck with us. The state didn't want to be stuck with us. And the feds would often say, it's a New York City problem. Um, and that's really a tragedy. Um, I know New Yorkers can be thought to be very cold and aloof, but I can tell you that when there's a, a tornado in Texas or a hurricane in Florida, our first responders are the first people to be on the ground conducting recovery, response, rebuilding. Um, none of us ever say that's a Texas problem or that's a Florida problem. It's US problem. And the terrorists didn't attack New Yorkers, they attacked the United States. How'd you get involved with John Stewart and his team? Um, actually, there was a gentleman, John Feel, who had attracted the attention of John Stewart. Prior to my involvement with John Stewart, I was working more with the uh, residents and survivors. Um, and that has always been a bit of an issue is that people often think it was just the first responders that got sick. Um, they don't realize that there were hundreds of thousands of people that lived in that area and businesses that were also their employees, their people that were impacted as well. Um, and so I worked with my community for a while and then we brought our forces together. Uh, once again, the larger a number of people that are advocating for an issue, the more power you have. But we really didn't have enough power until John Stewart brought his voice and his shame of Congress to our cause. I watched that video. When I started this whole 9-11 outreach project, obviously, you know, I wanted to get familiar with, because I, like I said, when I was in the military, 9-11 happened and I remember my experience, but I wanted to get familiar with the actual event. And so I, you know, I versed myself in what happened, all the news footage and what have you. But I also wanted to learn about the survivors and what have you. And I watched that footage of Jon Stewart speaking to Congress and I'd never seen it before. I'd never heard about it before. And it, it left me angry. It was powerful. And I, you guys had a hell of a voice speaking for you guys. I mean, that, that video was damning and, and it was, it was very moving. And um, to, to give John um, incredible credit is, you know, look, there were celebrities that gave us attention and, you know, would come sometimes on camera with us, but people don't understand that the halls of Congress 
are miles and miles of marble floors and walking. Um, we would record our steps. On a light day, we do nine or 10,000 steps, sometimes 17 or 18,000. Probably 22 of the 25 of us had cancer um, or lung problems. And John would walk those halls with us. So he didn't just show up in the limo and come for media days. He was there in the trenches. So he really got to know those men and women. And so it became personal for him as he got to know them. And that that famous hearing, probably one of the most poignant days ever in the house for me, you know, I'd met Lou when he was a strapping, healthy Marine, um, bomb expert. And within months, he was fading. Part of that was deeply troubling for us because many of us had cancer too. So seeing one of our members slip away from us was really hard. It definitely made the fight more deeply personal and emergent. And that day, Lou's brother had to really just about carry him into the room. And he used one of his last good days to give that testimony. There aren't too many people that would do that. There are people that would be home with their families. And he made a trip to Washington, D.C. from New York to come and speak that piece because it was so important to him. And for John, because he he knew Lou and his family, it it infuriated him. It touched him so deeply. I, I think that John had prepared remarks, and those just went out the window that day. He didn't need them. He didn't yeah. need them. He was right. It was, you know, we had half of Congress in there, and you know they were running in and out for votes. And it's so disheartening to be telling such stories to people who aren't even listening to you. And and his fury was just building at what he was watching. I have this iconic photo of one of the members of the house, Mary Kay, and you see her with a hand held to her face as she watches Lou speak and and everyone in that room knew that you know maybe he had a matter of days left that they were listening to a dying man and I don't know how often Congress is exposed um, to something that raw and powerful and yet half the members weren't even there to listen to this man yeah and John spoke up that's powerful Oh, man, this is a powerful interview. Okay, Duval Nation, we're going to pause it right there to take a small break, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Anne-Marie Principe. Pay attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours, too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. 
BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Show. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing podcasting made easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podcasticaudio.com slash easy. This is William Yeski, author of the book, Damn the Valley. I invite you to take a journey into a combat deployment that I was on during 2010 while serving with the men of the 82nd Airborne Division. On that deployment, we suffered a 52% casualty rate and filled the wards at Walter Reed with soldiers that had been serving within the heavy conflict that was happening within the Argonaut River Valley. The stories contained within the book are all true and even verified by not only DOD sources, but the men that were there on the ground fighting. I should know, I was one of them. It was not an easy task to write, but one that paints a vivid picture for the reader and a picture the reader won't soon forget. Pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, or your friendly neighborhood independent bookstore today. This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.
Welcome back to episode 232 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with conclusion of our interview with 9-11 survivor and advocate, Anne-Marie Principe. Uh, you have been a part of the Never Forget you, the Heroes bill, which establishes the September 11 Victim Compensation Fund. What does it mean for you to be part of such a groundbreaking legislation? It's definitely, I think many people think I want to have something when I leave this world that says I made a difference. I did I did something special and not just for me. And John Feel, who had organized this group, made sure that every member of that team was sick or had lost a member of their family. And we had all been paid from the BCF. So we stood nothing to gain from the extension of this bill. This was, our premise was no one left behind. No one should have to fight this alone. And since we were still here and breathing for the most part, um, albeit with oxygen and walking through cancer surgeries, we were still here. And I think that was the other thing that made it powerful. You know, when you've got people who are looking for something for themselves, that's self-serving. None of us were looking for something for ourselves. We were doing this for 400 other thousand people that would come after us. If you're comfortable talking about it, I have read and heard from other interviews that you've given uh, that you have struggled mightily with your health these last few years <laughs> from the exposure to the World Trade Center dust. Uh, yes. If you, if it's okay, would you mind talking about that? Um, yeah. It's Anytime I go into a doctor and and they're new and they look through my medical chart, um, I wait for them to start looking and nodding their heads. And um, two a one, I hear, "Wow, you've been through a lot, haven't you?" Um, which is an understatement. Um, for me, my lungs were the first to go, uh, and simply because they were just opaque with dust and ash. I went through lots of chemical therapies that didn't work and then um, began to investigate alternative medicines and my lungs eventually were healed enough that I didn't need to use equipment to breathe and I could function and I had a five-year-old daughter at the time and I really couldn't even do anything with her because I was too sick I was too weak I couldn't go out in the heat I couldn't go out in the cold um, my lungs were far too sensitive. I needed to be close enough to either a nebulizer or oxygen so I could breathe. Um, and back at that time, you had huge oxygen tanks um, that you needed to use. Um, and it wasn't until I got a portable oxygen tank that I was free enough to walk around. Um, once my lungs healed, I had about a year where I started to feel really good. And I thought, okay, maybe maybe I'm going to be okay. Um, and then I started to get horrific headaches where I'd lose my sight and my, my joints were curling in and I went to see a specialist and on a Christmas Eve back in 2003, they told me that I had a growth in my brain, um, that would be difficult for them to remove. I would eventually begin to have seizures, lose my sight, um, and I would probably have a catastrophic stroke 
if I were not near a hospital or I couldn't get to help soon enough, I would probably pass. Um, and this was terrific to me. Um, when it came to seeing surgeons to try to correct this, because of my lungs, no one wanted to do the surgery. No one wanted to touch it. It was far too dangerous anesthesia-wise, um, which was something I learned that um, people who have asthma are, are not good candidates for surgery because with a breathing tube, they can't tell if you've stopped breathing on your own or not. It's breathing for you. And I finally found a specialist at Columbia Presbyterian who asked me, he said, I, I could do this under local, but you'd be awake. You're going to be awake when we do this. And I don't know if I thought about what that really was at the moment. I just thought my daughter is now six years old and I want to be here. I want to watch her grow up. Um, I don't want to leave my child. I don't, I'm not ready to leave this earth yet. And so I agreed that I could attempt this. I would do this. And I did. Um, February 2005, I did a craniotomy, which means they take a surgical saw to your skull um, and they take something like a black and decker into your brain to fix the growth. And I did that fully awake, speaking to the surgeons in residence. And I'm I'm not sure who was more freaked out, the surgical team or me. When I was wheeled out, I had friends who were waiting for me. They were freaked out um, because I was talking and awake. And it remains one of the most surreal experiences of my life. Um, and from that time on, um, I really became even more dedicated to seeing that our healthcare was funded and taken care of. Um, it, it was unconscionable that these were the kind of things that were happening to us and nobody was listening and nobody was helping. Um, and I, I went through periods of time where my lungs would work well and they wouldn't. Um, I became an advocate for alternative and functional medicine. And in 2018, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and, you know, that was a big one. Um, but once again, I believe that it, it was important to look at alternative treatments I did have to do a double mastectomy and my doctors were pushing me to do chemo and radiation. And I went and did some research and found that first of all, from people in my community, they did chemo and radiation and they still pass from their cancer. Others did chemo and radiation and it destroyed their kidneys, their livers. They were never the same again. And I found this incredible doctor at Dana-Farber in Boston, who was still my oncologist. And she said to me, you know, sometimes doctors overprescribe chemo and radiation. Um, I don't think it works for everyone. Cancer is not one size fits all. In particular, you're immunocompromised. You know, you've had other issues with, with your brain and, and your breathing. And let's do some genetic and other tests and see what we've got here. And she did something called an oncotype test, which looks at your um, family history, how you grew up, did you exercise, did you eat healthy? And she told me um, from the results of the test 
that she believed chemo would be dangerous for me. And there wasn't that much of a difference if I chose not to do it. And she said, you know, that's a choice you have to make. I can't make it for you. And so together with my daughter, I decided to forego chemo and radiation. Um, and this past summer, I hit remission with not one dose of radiation or one drop of chemo, all holistic medicines. Um, and I swear by those holistic medicines. That's amazing. That's, and that's, that's incredible. I'm not a cure. I've got five more years to cure, but, but remission is a pretty great word these days. That's amazing. Uh, I, I'm so happy for you. That's, that's an amazing story. Uh, in the years that have passed since September 11th, 2001, how have you dealt mentally with that day? Oh, I think my work is my healing. Um, September 11th took so much from me, my, my business, my livelihood, it ended my marriage. Everything I knew was gone. And in doing the work that I did, I find that when I turn my attention from myself to other people, that's my superpower. That's what chases the demons. Um, if I sit home, you know, a couple of times I've been sick and had the flu and been stuck inside for two weeks, no contact with people, I definitely get depressed and, and deeply sad. Um, you know, uh, many of us to this day still have terrible PTSD and different things trigger us, um, a siren, you know, a perfectly blue sky. I, I will always have psychological issues from that day and in all the days that followed, um, which is why I'm now working on another bill called the Breakthrough Therapies Act that is actually going to reschedule psychedelics for mental health treatment. Um, so I'm going back to my 60s roots in psychedelics. And um, my daughter finds this very entertaining that her 60-something-year-old mom is working on a psychedelics bill. Nice. Um, what did you think of the World Trade Center Memorial? And have you gone to visit it? Oh, that took me many years. Um, I did not. I was certainly at the Memorial Glade. Um, which is open, that's the pools and the trees and the, the gardens. I couldn't bring myself to walk into the museum because it's actually the pit. It is the base. It's the footprint of the towers, which is what we wanted. We didn't ever want someone to build over that, that sacred hallowed ground to us. You, you couldn't put another building there. There's, there's still souls there. You know, there are people that weren't recovered. And, and so to go back into that pit, and certainly I'd been in the pit before when it was still, you know, a burning, dusty mess. And so the thought of going back down into that was too deeply troubling for me. And my daughter and her boyfriend finally convinced me that they would go with me so I wouldn't be alone. And it was quite an astonishing experience. Um, I, I definitely, I think I wept for the first half hour looking at the beams and the photos and 
hearing the voices in certain parts of the museum, I still cannot go into. It's still too painful 22 years later. I still cannot go into parts of that museum. One of my questions I've, I've asked all of my uh, survivors who've come on the show is, what are your memories of the World Trade Center? I mean, were you a frequent visitor of the towers? Did you go to Windows of the World? Um, strangely enough, my first job out of college when I was flying um, was to work for an air charter company. And they had an office on the 79th floor of Tower One. And the, the buildings themselves were amazing. I don't know if you ever were in the towers, but the elevators themselves were um, astonishing. You had to take an escalator up to a mezzanine, and then you took an elevator up to, I think it was like the 44th floor. Then you took an escalator up to another elevator. So it was a whole process just to get up into the building. And when you looked out the window, you could see and feel the building sway. Um, and I'd never been in a building that tall before. And yes, I went up to windows in the world and it was a spectacular view. It was beautiful. And I had great memories when I worked in that building and the plaza and all the little businesses around it. So um, yeah, it was more than just two buildings to me. It was my, my very first job. Um, and certainly as a young person, you know, 19, 20 years old, and you get to work in this big, iconic building. It was exciting and fun. And um, I think I still have one or two business cards from that. And, and of course, how many people have a business card that says One World Trade Center? Right. What, what do you do on, when 9-11 when rolls around every year, what do you do on that day? Oh, you know, it's it's been different every year. Um, there were times I would not go back downtown. Um, I wasn't ready. I do have a great community of people and friends that sometimes I will go on September 11th and meet them and we go to the memorial together and, and then we go out afterwards and have breakfast or lunch and, um, and not talk about the day. Um, just kind of keep checking on one another. Some, some September 11th are more emotional than others. One for me was my best friend who was the co-founder of From the Ground Up was, was dying of her 9-11 cancer. And she couldn't make it into the memorial. So myself and one of the attorneys who founded From the Ground Up with us, Janine Janice, we went and spent the day together. And we realized that we'd never done that before in 20 years. It was the 20th anniversary. We'd never spent the day together. And it was actually quite nice. We ordered ourselves a really nice lunch. We sat out in her backyard in Westport. And we were silent for a few moments. And then I think it dawned on us that 20 years later, we were still together, still doing the same work. And there was a great sense of peace and legacy for her. And she she had done something important with her life. And, and that was really meaningful to me. Um, 
this year, for some reason, it hit really, really hard. And I made the terrible mistake of doing a radio interview as I was riding downtown and going to meet my colleagues. And I happened to be passing my best friend's apartment who had passed. And I saw all the the cars and the limousines and I heard the bells and I just was overcome with sadness. And fortunately, um, my, my friends were at the site and, and I got up there, I said, I just full on gulp sobbed on air. Um, there's some four people that were listening to this radio show and got this hysterical woman trying to get through her day. And I thought, I will never do that again. I will never, ever get on air. Not at that time. Not uh, at that time. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame you. That's, that's a, that's a hard day right there. Yes. I'm going to read this verbatim because I'm going to mess it up if I try to do it off the top of my head. So a woman of distinction by the League of Women Voters, two national leadership awards from Congress, a 9-11 Manhattan Chamber of Commerce Award. I read these awards and citations to you. How does that make you feel? Funny. It sounds like it's another person. Really? Yeah, it does. You know, look, I'm, I'm honored that they honored me. But the work that I do often helps me more than it helps other people. It, it just gives me back my sense of power. I remember yeah. my mom coming to an event where I received that woman distinction award and they were reading off um, a bunch of awards. And my mom looked at me and she said, you got an award from the president and Congress? And she said, why didn't you tell me? And I said, I don't know, mom, I guess I just didn't think about it. Um, and it struck me as really funny after that, that, you know, my own mom was just like, I didn't know that about you. And, and to this day, I, I think about that, but she raised um, her children to be humble. And I thought she's my mom. She knows who I am. She loves me. I don't need to tell her these things. <laughs> Love it. Pierre de Coubertin said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. And Marie, you got a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to her? I would say to her to slow down, think before you make choices, and always follow your heart and not your head. It is good to surround yourself with good people avoid the toxic ones, run from the toxic people um, and embrace those people who see the best in you and bring out the best in you. Hmm. Good answer. So you mentioned earlier the psychedelic legislation that you were talking about, but what is next for you? Um, well, next for me is that LG, the electronics company, um, has decided to look into AI, med tech, and do something different with their technology and how they develop things. And so they're looking at bringing environment, healthcare, and agriculture together, because right now our planet is in trouble. We have food that is contaminated. Our water supply is contaminated. We've ruined 
our environment and our healthcare needs an overhaul. And so they're looking at groundbreaking med tech um, new therapies um, in how to treat illnesses. And this first started in Ireland with a colleague in Ireland, um, calls it psychosocial medicine. And he launched this pilot maybe five years ago. Um, and it has proven to be a tremendous success in Ireland where people are healthier, happier, more productive. The cost to take care of people, healthcare has gone down significantly and their economy has improved and grown. And so LG has watched this and just last week in West Virginia, launched a partnership with West Virginia, $700 million investment, 250 jobs to bring these new technologies to West Virginia, which happens to be one of the most toxically impacted states. You've got the miners, you have 9-11 survivors, you have a huge military population. And so they are launching this initiative to bring all of those things together and hopefully change healthcare, not just in this nation, but globally. All right. Anne-Marie, as we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. What do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? Hmm. I love music, um, real music lover, um, and the arts. We have a fantastic art gallery here in New Jersey that's 2 million square feet. It's just a beautiful gift to the state um, where I like to go, where they play music and you get exposed to all different kinds of art, sculpture and photographs. Um, I like to look for beauty. It's important to me to find the beauty in the world because I've seen so much that's dark and unfortunate and, and to travel again. I'm just starting to travel again. It was very hard for me to get on a plane after September 11th. And that's still something I'm trying to conquer. Um, and so I'd like to travel again as much as I used to. I plan to take my daughter to Italy in the summer. Nice. I do have to ask you, since you are a Jersey girl uh, and you are a music lover, are you a big Springsteen fan? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I was just talking to um, an old high school friend and... I can remember going to get her at Rutgers one night. We were probably 17 years old. And she said to me, there's this guy, Bruce Springsteen, and he's playing down at the Stone Pony. I really want to go. And, you know, you're 17, have car, will travel. And I was like, sounds good to me. Um, and we went down there and I was captivated, you know. Um, you know, he was in his T-shirt and jeans and we were 17 and the music was great and we were down the shore, as people in New Jersey say, you don't go to the beach, you go down the shore. And so we were just in the perfect Jersey climate, you know, cold beer, Bruce Springsteen, 17, um, dancing till four in the morning. Yes, I am a Bruce lover. Nice. I just saw him here in Tulsa about six months ago. And at his age, he's still doing it and still putting a one hell of a show on. Right. I mean, he remains youthful and probably because he does what he loves. Yeah, absolutely. Anne-Marie, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? 
um, sure, they can actually go to my website, which is, it is Affinity Healthcare Advocates, but I've shortened it so people can find it really easy. And it's aha-us.org. And it tells about my work and how they can support and follow. And we always welcome people following us and supporting our work so that we can change the face of healthcare. All right. Anne-Marie, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? Behave kindly, be gentle to each other, spread love, not hate. All right. Anne-Marie, you are a walking, talking miracle and an inspiration to millions. I want to thank you for advocating for countless lives who have been affected by this disaster and for your tireless work. We all owe you a debt that I'm pretty sure we can never repay. So thank you for coming on the show today. I'm not going to lie to you. You have become one of my favorite guests, and I've been doing this a long time. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, and and thank you for doing this because – Every time you raise my voice, you help me to continue my work. So I thank you for that. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 232. I want to thank Anne-Marie from the bottom of my heart for coming on the show. I will be 100% on the level with you, Deval Nation. After we disconnected the Zoom call, I sat in silence when I waited for the Zoom video to process, to catch my breath, as that was a powerful interview. And it reminded me just how important this 9-11 outreach project is and how important it is to preserve these stories and to give these survivors a platform to tell them. So, Emery, thank you again. You are truly one in a million. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, there's some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say each and every one of you listening... I'm going to go ahead and post the video of Jon Stewart speaking to Congress in the show notes so everyone can view it. It is a very moving and powerful video, and I hope you can take 12 minutes out of your day, unlike Congress could, to watch it. Nostra, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.